Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm wonderful. You know, one thing I think is just so exciting is that we are quite a few episodes deep into As We Eat Now, and I just love the fact that I always look forward to talking to you, and I'm just having so much fun with this, and I'm grateful for our listeners, and I'm grateful for you, and I'm just a super, super happy mood right now. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. I am also awesome. And I, I, yeah, I know we are like, this is 27 episodes, which is pretty cool. The things that we've learned and the things that we've talked about, I think have been so fascinating for me. And likewise, I just get all excited about our recording days. And I get a little nervous sometimes too. I think, oh gosh, I hope our (laughs) listeners really like what we're going to present to them. I always get that little twinge of nervousness as well. And then we get such great feedback from people that say that they like like us. They really like us. It makes me feel so warm and fuzzy inside when I hear this. So thank you for the compliments, everybody. Keep them up. Exactly. Thank you so much. Well, you know, we are in this season of transition now, right? From summer to fall and things are shifting a little bit. The colors are changing. The leaves are changing. The evenings are getting a little bit more brisk. Summer vacations and outings Mm -hmm. are kind of winding down. And this is the season of county and state fairs. Besides marking the end of summer with carnivals and rodeos and live music, fairs have had this really interesting impact on food culture in America and across the world both. And I think it would be kind of fun to talk about that today. Oh, yes, please. Yes. I love me some fair food. There's a lot to talk about in fair food. And I think I'm going to start out with the very first World's Fair in London that happened in 1851. One of the things that was really important is that they wanted to help people understand other cultures. And they wanted to support this goal of inspiring people to think beyond their everyday experiences So there were a lot of cuisines that were represented in this first World's Fair from Morocco and Turkey and China. And the one thing that they talked about was that these were authentic foods. And I didn't know that we have talked about the word authentic before, but I think it was really important during this period of time that they felt that the foods that were being represented and presented to people, that they were authentic so that they were expanding this worldview. And then you get into the exhibitions of the 1893 World's Fair, which was held in Chicago. And this one focused on, and this is a super interesting dichotomy to me. So they really focused on the agricultural bounty of America, the new farming techniques that were developed in America, but also this shift from natural foods to manufactured foods. 
And during this time, which was really the end of the Industrial Revolution, you had this migration from rural to urban living. So as a country, we had to figure out how to feed our cities. And you can't just transport fresh produce from one spot to another, especially during this time. We didn't have airplanes that were flying right. cross country and fast. Right. So you had to figure out how best you had the railroads. Right. <laughs> and so you had to really But they were still being constructed. Exactly. Really. Yeah. So yeah. you had to figure out how to feed the cities because so many people had migrated from this rural life mm. into this urban life. And mm -hmm. it was at this point in time that we had foods like shredded wheats and cracker jacks that were actually introduced at this world's fair. And again, it's really super interesting because you have these dishes, these meals, these products that were composed of natural ingredients, but they use these new manufacturing technologies to get the foods to these urban centers. So you were playing this line between natural foods and what they called synthetic foods, which was really interesting because they still were manufactured <laughs> from natural foods, but because they were not homemade, they were considered synthetic foods. And that goes for canned foods. These canned goods were also a really super important product that was being promoted during this World's Fair. We've talked about this before, the concern, especially in the 19th century, that the American public was concerned about the purity of the products, right. right? So during this World's Fair, they have these beautiful displays of canned goods in the agricultural building. And I know that we may raise an eyebrow a little bit about this display of canned goods, but you have to remember that this was really a new concept. And to overcome this apprehension Comprehension of canned goods. They were given this validity because of the fact that they were within this building itself. Actually, had the official guide, the official guide to the world's Columbia Exposition. Now, this fair was dedicated to Columbus's discovery. Please note the air quotes around discovery of America. Air quotes. <laughs> air quotes. There are quotes here, folks. Right. And this is history, my friends. It is not the opinion of this podcast or the cast or crew or whatever other <laughs> disclaimer that we have to make here. But at any rate, the official guide actually lists canned goods in several of the exhibitions. The whole write-up talks oh, about wow. the canned goods. And then past those types of exhibitions, you had national villages, which I imagine were much like the London Fair that offered these cuisines from around the world. And it's important to remember that around this time, America was really starting to look beyond the English methods of cooking and anything that was foreign was really exotic. There was this sense in these national villages, there was this sense of adventure and daring and a little bit of I can do anything you can do better attitude that was really fostered by the guide because in the write-ups it included things like a dish that only insert your favorite ethnic group could eat so there was this kind of this competition mm -hmm. that was presented to you only a Swede could eat this unless possibly you could eat it so there was this invitation <laughs> into experiencing yes, some of these like this challenge yes into eating some of yeah. these other dishes and when you think about it, our more modern county and state fairs aren't that much different when it comes to foods. We see things like fried beer, 
stew on a stick, Kool-Aid pickles, (laughs) Krispy Kreme donut burgers. These are dishes that speak to the evolution of our perception of food combinations, but also the innovations that we saw with the canned goods and chewing gum and pancake mixes that were introduced during this 1893 World's Fair. They're, They're things that we take for granted now, but they were cutting edge. And they really exemplified the innovation of new products, new ways to move our agricultural bounty across the nation. Today, we also see at the fairs, specifically state fairs, dishes that also define a region, like cream puffs in Wisconsin. And this was a campaign Mm -hmm. that was championed by the dairy industry in Wisconsin back in 1924. Wine slushies, which of course is a California State Fair offering. (laughs) And with more than 1,200 wineries, what else could you serve? Only kidding, only kidding. California's agricultural industry is abundant and varied. But of course, wine slushies in California. Scones at the Puyallup. Now, if you're not from the Pacific Northwest or if you haven't lived there, this may be a little bit of a head scratcher. But basically, the Fisher family, they're the ones that make the scones and the scone mixes. And if you've been in any grocery store in the Pacific Northwest, you will recognize the plaid. You recognize it right away. Exactly. They came to Seattle in 1905 because it was a, quote, promising city on the coast and they opened up the largest flour mill in Seattle and the state fair was a great way to promote their company they developed the scone and the rest is Pacific Northwest history oh and they're so good and I hadn't heard about them until I moved up into the area even talking about them even imagining the plaid on the branding I can taste the scone, right. especially with a little bit of raspberry preserves, because that's how they serve it. And it's amazing. People go to great lengths. They'll take home bags and yes. bags of them from the fair. And I think that it transports you. We talk about food memories so often. It transports you back onto the midway, right? I mean, Absolutely. it's probably the only scone that can do that. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Speaking to the power of fair food, the Washington State Fair was canceled in 2020, yet they had several weekends in a row where you could come to the fairground. There was a route that was established that would allow you to basically drive through and pick up fair food. I just thought that was so fascinating that they recognized how important the food component was that even though they couldn't do any of the rest of it, the Grange exhibits or the 4-H competitions or anything, that it was, we're going to make it so that you can come get your food fair fix. I, I didn't know that they did that. That is yeah. so cool. Corn dogs, which are synonymous with Illinois, and I think, Kim, that you're going to be talking about this a little bit later, oh, but quickly, yes. the Vos mm-hmm. corn dog has been served for over 50 years at the Illinois State Fair by three generations of the Vos family. And then we have the Idaho ice cream potato. This is one of those innovative food items. It's food pretending to be something it's not, which always messes with your senses. (laughs) So the potato is actually vanilla ice cream that's shaped like a potato. It's rolled in cocoa powder, and then it's topped with whipped cream, chocolate syrup, nuts, and Oreos. And then you have roasted corn on the cob in Indiana, of course. Mm, of course. And over 100,000 ears of corn that are served at the fair are all from local farms that are picked and delivered daily. Oh, that's incredible. And then we have Oregon with the hemp burger. 
Enough said. Right. <laughs> Seafood chowder is a favorite fair food at Rhode Island, which totally makes sense for the ocean state. And then you have all of the 4-H programs that, in addition to the animal husbandry, mm. promote baking and canning and pickling and preserving foods that are judged against a set of standards. And the purpose of this is not necessarily to be competitive, but to teach the importance of how each of the ingredients functions within a recipe. It teaches techniques and how to produce wholesome, nutritious food. So you could really say that fair foods foster food education and innovation. So the next time you attend your local state or county fair, pay particular attention to the innovation of the snacks, how the offerings speak to a particular regionality or the inspiration that fried Twinkie brings to your cooking. I love fairs. Growing up in some really urban and suburban environments, fairs for me were a great opportunity to see animals like cows and sheep and pigs and horses up close. To see farm equipment and to learn how farms work, I took great joy, and I still do, in seeing arts and crafts competition entries jars of jewel-toned jellies and preserves, grange displays full of vegetables and fruits, quilts, sweaters made from pet hair, original watercolor paintings, and I really especially love the table decoration competitions where people go to extremes mm. to set a table that you would love to eat at. I love it too when they have a menu in mind when they put their tablescape together because I just start to have that fantasy about what a glorious meal that would be. And that's why we do what we do, right? Because we love that juxtaposition or that intersection of food and culture and what it brings to us and to our imaginations. <laughs> Fairs as an organized gathering for exposition, entertainment, and trading really harkens back to the Roman Empire. It's something we've been doing continuously for centuries. And when we talk about fairs, they can be the smaller village or county or state fairs or an agricultural show, all the way to the large multinational fairs that we call world's fairs. And in regard to the World's Fairs or exhibitions, we do tend to think of them as maybe nostalgic relics of the past, but they actually still continue to this day. Dubai actually will be hosting Expo 2020 this year from October 1st, 2021 through March 31st, 2022. The thing is, is that the fairs, both large and small, really highlight the incredible things that people can accomplish with vision and hard work. And that is the hallmark of any kind of exhibition fair. It's a chance to see new wonders, to marvel at new technologies, a chance to see new things, hear new things, and even taste something new, as we've been talking about. The foods that we generally associate with fairgrounds range from the very familiar cotton candy or candy apples or corn dogs to the more mythic things like chocolate-covered bacon, which I tried in California, fried candy bars, which I know I've tried here in Washington State, fried butter balls from Montana, and as you mentioned before, too, Kool-Aid pickles from North Carolina, <laughs> which I think sounds so, I'm so intrigued at the they basically marinate pickles and Kool-Aid until you get like a sweet, salty thing. I really want to try these now. But I wanted to dig into cotton candy because this, I think, is the epitome of what we think about when we think about fair foods. Now, a fairground staple, the origin of cotton candy is as ephemeral as the stuff itself. It appears to have been conjured from thin air. There are several romantic stories about cotton candy, also known as fun sugar, fairy floss, or candy floss, depending where you live in the world. Stories about candy floss debuting at the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus or at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. But really, filaments of sugar were used by mid-18th century master confectioners to create delicate, edible nests for sweetmeats. 
the really interesting bit of the story actually lies in how a very time-consuming process ended up being a veritable cash cow for fairground and circus vendors. Let's talk first about how to make cotton candy without a machine. Here's an excerpt from The Experienced English Housekeeper by Elizabeth Raffold in 1769. And she writes, quote, To spin a silver web for creating sweetmeats, take a quarter of a pound of treble refined sugar in one lump and set it before a moderate fire on the middle of a silver salver or pewter plate. Set it a little aslant, and when it begins to run like clear water to the edge of the plate or salver, have ready a tin cover or china bowl set on a stall with the mouth downward close to your sugar that it may not cool by carrying too far. Then take a clean knife and take up as much of the syrup as the point will hold, and a fine thread will come from the point, which you must draw as quickly as possible backwards and forwards, and also around the mold, as long as it will spin from the knife. Be very careful you do not drop the syrup on the web. If you do it, will spoil it. Then dip your knife into the syrup again and take it more, and so keep spinning until your sugar is done or your web is thick enough. If you don't want the web to cover the sweetmeats immediately, set it in a deep pewter and set it before the fire. It requires to be kept warm or it will fall. When your dinner or supper is dished, have ready a plate or dish of the size of your web filled with different colored sweetmeats and set your web over it. It is pretty for a middle where the dishes are few or corner where the number is large. Wow. It's complex, right? And that point actually gets further put to the point by the complete confectioner, pastry cook, and baker, plain and practical directions for making confectionery and pastry and for baking. This is a book by J.M. Sanderson, written in 1864, that contains these notes for sugar spinning. Quote, to attain proficiency in this part, it requires much practice and also a good taste for design and to be expert in the boiling of sugar, taking particular care to avoid its graining. Baskets, temples, vases, fountains, etc. are made by these means. It may almost be termed the climax of the art. And then furthermore, to make a gold web, one should bring syrup to caramel height, coloring it with saffron. It can be folded up to form bands or rings and etc. Fasten it to other decorations with caramel. So I'm reading through these descriptions of silver webs and gold webs and spun sugar and my head is spinning, right? <laughs> I mean, just, I'm transported by the thought of light golden strands and these sweet meats. I just love it. Some modern kitchen technologies like corn syrup, candy thermometers, and parchment paper make it moderately easier now to make your own candy floss at home, but these recipes will still warn that the effort is time-consuming, messy, and won't necessarily yield the billowy pastel clouds of pink, blue, or yellow that we might see at the fair. And that innovation in making cotton candy with a machine came about in 1897 when Mr. William J. Morrison and John C. Wharton of Nashville, Tennessee, submitted a patent for an electric machine that uses centrifugal force to extrude filaments of sugar through small holes from a rotating pan of melted sugar. And those sugar threads can be caught and wound around a paper, cone, or stick. So from 1897, cotton candy was now started to get sold virtually everywhere. Sweet shops, department store candy counters, circuses, and world fairs. Misters Morrison and Wharton sold their product at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair as Fairy Floss for 25 cents. And this is half the cost of fair admission itself. So that's how precious this Fairy Floss was. And at that time, they sold 68 1,655 units. Wow. So it was popular. Gold Medal Products of Cincinnati, Ohio, introduced the no-vibration 
quote, whirlwind cotton candy machine, end quote, in 1949. And today they still manufacture nearly 100% of all cotton candy machines in the country, along with all kinds of other concession machinery. I have a very vivid memory of buying and eating cotton candy at Franklin Elementary School in Santa Monica, California, probably around those early 80s. We were having a little school fair and they were selling cotton candy and I walked up to a vendor and I asked for pink flavor, <laughs> like you do <laughs> as a kid. And what flavor do I, you want? Yeah, exactly. I want pink. To me, it was just utter magic because they turned on this machine and what seemed to be out of thin air, this ball of beautiful, fluffy pink cotton candy appeared before me and it was mine. It was made right there for me. And I just remember it melting away into my mouth and that sensation of surprise about something that looks so substantial, this big fluffy thing of mm. cotton candy was virtually nothing. It was like eating air. Those are very fond memories of discovering how fun food could be. And I think that's speaking to some of what you were, we were talking about earlier. Fair food does that for us. It allows us to try something we would never make at home. And being able to pull off the impossible in five minutes for a little kid is it's just a miracle. Yeah. It's just like all of the sudden, with the flick of a wrist, you have this puff of magical deliciousness. And I think fairy floss, I think that's a better name than cotton candy, to be honest with you. It really is. Yeah. It's just magic. It, it appears like magic. It tastes like magic. It disappears like magic. You know, you're kind of left with uh, sticky fingers for your troubles, but it's just a beautiful, it's just a miracle in a way. <laughs> One of the things that makes humans apart from animals is our ability to combine foods or right. to really go to lengths to transform foods from one thing to another. We don't just eat a piece of raw kale. We chop it and we saute it with garlic and salt and other things to make it taste a certain way. Or we mix it with beef and make kale burgers. We're constantly looking for combinations and flavors. And that is something that's actually very uniquely human. Yes. So another fair favorite that I cannot resist when I go is any fried food on a stick. I'm a sucker for it. Corn dogs, cheese on a stick, pickles on sticks, candy bars. And I have a new holy grail now that I have to find. I've heard it's popular in Japan is a spicy tuna sushi roll corn dog. So basically it's a hand rolled spicy tuna roll dipped in batter and deep fried. On the heels of talking about mustard in our last episode, I'm totally geared up to talk about the peppy, zany, and very American-born fair treat, corn dogs. And this was fascinating. No one can definitively say where the corn dog was invented, but the Snackalicious Darling was first patented in 1927 by Mr. Stanley S. Jenkins before any claims of invention in 1942 at the Texas State Fair and definitely ahead of the Minnesota State Fair Pronto Pups in 1941. Although Pronto Pups do have a claim to fame in that their process utilizes pancake batter, yielding a less sweet corn dog traditionally made with cornmeal batter. An excerpt from Mr. Jenkins' patent that he filed in 1927 and was granted in 1929 for a combined dipping, cooking, and article-holding apparatus delightfully reads as such, quote, I have discovered that articles of food such, for instance, as wieners, boiled ham, hard-boiled eggs, cheese, sliced peaches, pineapples, bananas, and like fruit, and cherries, dates, figs, strawberries, etc. When impaled on sticks and dipped in batter, which includes in its ingredients a self-rising flour, and then deep fried in a vegetable oil at a temperature of about 390 degrees Fahrenheit, the resultant food product on a stick for a handle is a clean, wholesome, and tasty refreshment. End quote. 
there's actually some really interesting items here. Hard-boiled eggs. I really have not seen sold on a stick like this. No. Cheese, yes. Wieners. Even boiled ham would be kind of curious. The thing that was really fascinating about this patent was that he filed it and it was granted and then he never sold anything. So... I salute you, Mr. Jenkins, for your brilliance, although I question your marketing smarts. <laughs> Corn dogs really started hitting their stride, though, in the early 1940s in the form of Pronto Pups and Fletcher's Corny Dogs. And the origin story of the Pronto Pups tells us that concessions vendor and reformed bootlegger George mm. Boynton and his wife, Versa, developed their battered and fried dog after one rainy Labor Day weekend at Rockaway Beach, Oregon in 1938 or maybe 1939. The rain ruined a batch of traditional hot dog buns. More than one version of the story talks about him being depressed and feeding soggy hot dog buns to seagulls. So apparently this is a very important part of the story. George is like, why can't I? I just have like on demand, ready to go items. And so they figured it out. They figured out a batter mix and they trademarked the Pronto Pup name in 1942 and started selling franchises to whom they would provide the proprietary flour mix. And they had one rule and that was mustard only, no ketchup. <laughs> if you were a franchisee, it was mustard only, which is frankly something I can get behind. Even though I love ketchup, I love mustard a little bit more. Several decades later, you can now get a Pronto Pup with ketchup and mustard, but it took decades for them to loosen up on this mustard roll. Goes to show you how important mustard is. In October 1945, the Christian Science Monitor had this to say of Pronto Pups. Quote, if you have never heard of Pronto Pups, prepare yourself. They show signs of becoming as ubiquitous as Tom Thumb Golf, at least in the West. A man named G.M. Boyington of Salem, Oregon, invented and patented a special type of dough mix that looks like waffle batter. He impales a hot dog on a stick, dips the dog in the batter, thrusts it for a couple moments into boiling deep fat, and presto, you have a pronto pup. And it remains hot for 45 minutes or more, hence will probably be seen on many picnics, end quote. But these days, Pronto Pups are synonymous with my new favorite state fair, the Minnesota State Fair, home of Princess Kay and the Milky Way. With thanks to a man named William Breedy, or Breed, who after tasting his first Pronto Pup at a franchise in Chicago, secured six concession spots at the Minnesota State Fairgrounds in 1947. He convinced the Chicago franchisees to serve Pronto Pups at the Minnesota State Fair. And that year, 1947, 106,000 Pronto Pups were sold. And they've been a hit at the fair ever since. They are the unofficial food of the Minnesota State Fair. Another take on corndog history involved brothers Neil and Carl Fletcher, who started selling their own brand of corny dogs at the Texas State Fair in 1942. Three generations later, and the Fletchers' secret recipe is still secret, but they sell upwards of 600,000 corndogs every year during the three-week State Fair. Now, I am going to have to come back with a little bit more research on the Fletchers because there are some behind-the-scenes stories about this family that are wild, like family feud and a kidnapping. So I'm going to do my best to get some more detail going here. So check our social media for the dish on the Fletchers and their crazy corndog empire. 
corn dogs are not just popular in the United States, they're enjoyed around the world. In Argentina, they're sold at train stations and are made with cheese. In Australia, mm. they're called dogwood dogs. In New Zealand and South Korea, they are simply called a hot dog, which is also the name that they call hot dogs. So you could be getting a hot dog or you could be getting a corn dog if you ask for a hot dog. Okay. In Japan, they call it an American dog, but that batter is traditionally made with wheat rather than corn. And there's a new variation on the Korean version of a corn dog that actually has French fries on it. The pictures are really neat and amazing. I want to try one. I want to try all of them. Seriously, food <laughs> on a stick. I want to eat them all. <laughs> it's wholesome, it's tasty, and it's clean, according, right. to, according to Mr. Jenkins. Mr. Jenkins' patent. Yeah. So back to the World's Fair Expo 2020. The theme this year is connecting minds, creating the future, and there is a subcomponent of the fair dedicated specifically to food and livelihoods to, quote, discover how everything from climate change to technology will change how we source, prepare, and cook food, end quote. The fair this year is expected to feature more than 200 food and beverage stalls. The thing that is driving me to utter distraction about this year's event is an epical banquet at the Universal Museum of Food, described as such. Welcome to the year 2320. As a guest to the AI-curated Universal Museum of Food, you'll have a once-in-a-lifetime chance to explore the history of the world through food. Journey from caveman to spaceman as we feature extinct foods, levitating cakes, and a crisp of 1,000 flavors before taking a time-transcending journey over three spectacular paired courses designed to open your senses to the edible possibilities of future epics. And this whole thing is being staged by Bompus and Parr. They call themselves a multi-sensory experience design studio. Two of the innovations promised at the Expo 2020 this year is bioluminescent soup, and a flavor-changing dessert. And I'm just thinking Violet Beauregard from Charlie the Chocolate Factory would like absolutely finally get her wish for the ultimate the flavor-changing gum. I love the fact that we started talking about the World's Fair in 1854. 1851 in London and 1893 in Chicago. Yeah. But here we are in 2021 and we're still having these conversations about food and how we're going to feed you know, our nations, how we're going to bring food to the cities. We're still playing with this notion of what is authentic food and what flavors are remaining to be discovered. I'm really excited about the fact that this is a human conversation that has been taking place for centuries. Yeah. That we find it still valuable to talk about. That makes me really happy. We care about food. We care about right. the things that we eat and why we eat them and who we eat them with. And it just makes me happy to be part of it. So I wish I could go to Dubai this year and experience this event, but there is going to be another one in Kyoto in 2023. And I'm going to plan to be there. We'll have to or make plans to be there together. 2023. 20, yes. Oh, we can totally do 2025. Yeah. Yes, we'll plan to be there together. Okay. Awesome. Perfect. Can't wait. Stay tuned <laughs> as we eat, fans. <laughs> we'll bring you with us. So, yeah, we're going to be going to the Washington State Fair uh, this year. Excited. It's going to be a live event. So I will make sure I get pictures of all the delicious things I eat. And I think I'm going to revisit some old foods or familiar foods that I haven't had for a while, like cotton candy and have that moment of magic. So I can't wait to see the fair foods that you enjoy when you go to the Pialop. Yeah, and stay tuned for more about the fascinating Fletcher family and their right. kidnapping saga. But I am starving, <laughs> like always. <laughs> like always. So 
I don't think we have uh, levitating cakes available in the house or bioluminescent soup, but I'm sure I can find something delicious. I actually even have some corn dogs in the freezer, which is sad place for them. So I might pop them in the air fryer and start to pregame for the Washington State Fair. So before you go on your corn dog induced adventure, <laughs> right? <Yes. laughs> what are we going to talk about in two weeks? Oh, in two weeks, we are going to revisit one of our favorite topics, which is kitchen technologies. If you have suggestions, we actually love suggestions. We love it when you make them. Give us a shout out. Let us know what you have lurking in your kitchen that you would like a little bit more history on. I'm happy to do the research. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll be publishing the As We Eat Journal, a companion publication to the podcast. We'll take you behind the scenes, dig deeper into food lore and history, share recipes and amazing photos, and so much more. Make sure to sign up on the website for updates. Oh, and one more thing. We also have a Patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron. We've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called Recipe Box Roulette. We think you're really going to love it. You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously. Obviously.